0: This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons. Their faithful support allows us to continue the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are a small team composed of two families. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories, so we rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value the work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way to support Bodies Behind the Bus is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but has a tremendous impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen.
1: Today, we have the honor to welcome Shasta. Shasta will be sharing about her time in the mission field and working with World Venture. Her journey is filled with heartbreak, bravery, and a passionate call for truth and accountability. We are thankful for Shasta's voice and courage to share her story. At the end of the episode, Shasta and I reconvened and talked for a moment about some of the editing decisions that we made for this story as a podcast. And I really hope that you all stick around to listen to the reasoning behind the decisions we made and to hear from Shasta about what that process was like for her. Thank you all for daring to listen. And with that, I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast.
0: I am all about blessed subtraction. There there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Marsville bus. (laughs) And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. Put the best I can stop. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We are thrilled and honored to have Shasta here today. Shasta is gonna share about her time with a missionary organization called World Venture. Shasta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is a, I will just say it is a sad and heartbreaking story um, that we're about to share, but getting to know you through the phone calls that we've had, reviewing your story, your spirit, and who you are as a person, like uh, it's just, a, it's going to be an honor to share this story today. So we're thrilled to have you. And I think this is going to provide a lot of hope to a lot of people. I want to start with an easy one because we're not as familiar with sending a missionary organization. So can you talk a little bit about what is World Venture and why did you decide to join them?
2: Ah, oh, I didn't think I was gonna get teary, but it's kind of really impactful just to have someone share their empathy for this sort of stuff. Um, that hit me just now. <laughs> so I went to school for intercultural studies and it was a Christian Bible college. And so that is basically missions. It's like you want to work sharing the gospel, acting out the gospel interculturally in the world doesn't necessarily have to be overseas. It can be in your community, but working cross-culturally. And so you take lots of classes to do that. And part of that is you come into contact with a lot of mission organizations, setting organizations who look for new missionaries at Bible colleges. Like, that's the prime place. And I went to Northwestern College in The Twin Cities in Minneapolis, technically St. Paul. Now it's called the University of Northwestern St. Paul, and it has Baptist roots. It's not like a Baptist college, but it's got Baptist roots. And they have, because of that, they have a really strong connection to World Venture based in Colorado and the Denver metro area. I had a very positive experience connecting with a recruiting couple who was from World Venture. They actually had gone to Northwestern as as young people, graduated, and then went with World Venture to East Africa. In fact, both of my intercultural studies professors, who were specifically for that major, also went with World Venture. And then we're coming, like, come back and taught. I had very positive experiences with those professors and positive experiences with the recruiting couple. Um, I'll just call them P and M. They're very loving people. And when I was graduating from college, I was looking for an organization to go with. And I had attended Urbana in, I think it was 08 or 09. I can't remember. It's been a while. It's been like over 10 years. And I had known them through my studies, but then they were, PNM were at the World Venture booth at Urbana. And Urbana is like a big missions conference. It was in St. Louis that year. And they, I remember they had like bouncy balls at their, like sitting bouncy balls at their booth. And it was like the big flashy booth, which normally doesn't catch my attention, but PNM were there. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go and see what's going on. For me, I was looking for an organization that valued mentorship. Because I knew myself and I knew that relationships were really important to me. And I I was not comfortable just like some mission organizations just kind of toss you out and just like build your own adventure. Go figure it out. And I knew I wanted to be like in relationship with people who had done this before. Kind of sitting at their feet and learning. Because there's just so many mistakes that you can make culturally and spiritually when you're entering another culture. culture and you can just... I knew that I wanted to gain some more, like, practical wisdom. And they had this program called Journey Corps. And Journey Corps, it's, you know, like a playoff of Peace Corps. It was all about, like, at the time, at Urbana, this is what the program was about. That's important to note because it changed later between the time I signed up to when I went. The program was about picking kind of like a tract, like you kind of do in the Peace Corps, like a you know, a medical track or like working with children or like um, arts and culture and specializing and then, you know, being with a missionary who's on the field doing that. And that's what was presented to me. And I thought, okay, that fits like my comfortability level and my skill set. And I didn't have a specific like region I wanted to go to. It was more like, what are my giftings and where would that fit? I signed up, but it takes a while to, from the time you you decide to do something uh, till you go, mostly for fundraising reasons, because you know there's you don't go there with a job. You you have to, or at least most missionaries don't. Some do, called tent makers. But and it was like twenty grand a year, and so that took me a long time. It took me a year longer even than I had hoped for. So I won't go too far in the weeds because there's just so much more to unpack. But that's like the gist of like how I. Picked world venture.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of terms that, as we share more stories in the missionary field, that we're super unfamiliar with. So I appreciate you spending time, kind of going through that. What is a tent maker? <laughs>
2: it's like its own jargon. <laughs> I think it's a reference to um, was it Paul who, when he was a missionary, uh, he during his missionary journeys made tents for a living for a while to sustain his travels. So if you go to especially often call them closed countries, like countries that are not open for you to vocationally go as a missionary, you'll be a tent maker. You find a job there. And I mean, it's just like anyone else living in their home community. Yeah. Yeah. Okay,
1: good. So you mentioned that things changed between the time you signed up and then were able to go would you say that that was like leadership wise, it changed st- structure? Can you dig into that just a little bit more? And then also just get into like what is the leadership structure at World Venture?
2: Yeah, I was. 21 during that urbana conference and then by the time i went i think i was 23 yeah because it was 2012 was the year i was planning on going and then i needed an extra year to fundraise so i was 23 so 22 23 uh 2013 i left anyways so the original concept being much more like hands-on as a young adult that was really important to me graduating from college is absolutely terrifying and, you know, you don't know what you're going to do with yourself. So that was appealing. And then by the time in 2013, I was ready to leave. There's not a lot of communication once you kind of sign up to be sent to closer to the time that you're being sent. So some things changed at the time. It did not click with me that there would be anything untoward about why it changed or like problematic about why it had changed the program changed to being instead of working close with missionaries you were going to be sent into a host family home much more similar to the peace corps sent into a family's home you're not allowed to basically do anything official or like quote-unquote work for a year because you need to be in culture learning and you just need to be present and you need to earn the right to even be there. And a part of that was very attractive to me as well and made a lot of sense because one of the main themes in missiology or like mission culture is trying to correct a lot of the ethnocentric tendencies of missional sorry, I'm getting very like academic here like missional the methods of the past were incredibly like white centric and white church centric. And so And many people are trying to correct for that by spending time learning much before you even come in and do any kind of work. And that on the surface sounds great, but it can be executed poorly, which is what I experienced. And the reason it changed was because the person, as I was told, and I wasn't told very much, but the person who was in charge of the program abruptly quit and another person was put in charge of the program. And I do not know the details of how it all got hashed out, but I do know that this person, his name uh, is Leader R. He was a very reluctant leader of this group, of the Journey Corps, specifically in Cote d'Ivoire, in West Africa, in English, it's called the Ivory Coast. the country next to Ghana and many other countries. It is south of uh, Burkina Faso and Mali. He was put in charge of the Journey Corps program, and many things changed. I was not made aware of this until, like, the week I arrived to be sent out. I arrived at uh, the World Venture headquarters in Denver, Colorado, to be sent out. And it was kind of just briefly told to me that it was different, and I kind of had the choice to accept it or not, but I think they were very eager for participants, and so I don't think they wanted to discourage me in any way. A little bit more about this reluctant leader... He was the country director, I believe that's his title, for Cote d'Ivoire, for this sending organization for, for World Venture. So he supervised all of the missionaries and projects, to the best of my understanding. It's kind of like a country leader and then a region leader, and then there's more structure, mostly back at, in Denver. He was married, his wife was also on the field, and this leader, leader uh, he'd grown up in Cote d'Ivoire uh, I believe his father and his mother were missionaries there. And so he really viewed himself as Ivorian. His parents were originally from the U.S. and then they had moved to Cote d'Ivoire. And so uh, another reason I had agreed to go on this specific program was that PNM, those missionaries who I'd met while at college, were also a part of uh, the leadership of Journey Corps. They were specifically signed up, even though they had served in another part of the world for a long time, they they loved young people and they specifically wanted to serve with this group of young people. So there were two couples involved, Leader R and his wife, and then P and M. Yeah, there's a lot more of it. So if you, just let me know if you have any questions, but that's kind of the basics.
0: No, that makes sense. So you have a, you've got a, like a regional team that would be in the United States, and then you have in-country leadership, which Leader R was one of them. How would you interact with leadership? Is this, are you meeting with them every day? What does that look like?
2: Yeah. So there's like the stateside team um, and there was a journey Corps coordinator who was a former, we called ourselves journeyers, former journeyer. His name uh, was C and he lived in Denver with his wife who we'd met. And he was the person who we communicated with the most before we were sent out It wasn't a lot. He was just in charge of our orientation. And then once we got to Côte d'Ivoire, it was the way that the program was laid out is you lived two months in a city called Boisquet in the center of the country. It's really beautiful. (laughs) Lots of coconut sort of vise papayas. It's really, really lovely. We stayed at this old missionary school. It was taken over during one of the civil wars. And then the French used it as a military base. It's got a big history. And then the original owners were world venture. But in in Cote d'Ivoire, they're called Mission Baptiste. Anyway, so we lived there for two months, learned French, did a lot of culture training, got to know our teammates a little bit better. And then from there, we were sent out to live in uh, villages or towns. I was with three other journeyers. And then all the other journeyers were either put with one other person or by themselves. And when I say with, we weren't in the same home. We were uh, connected to a local church, and then uh, some of the churches were in the same city. And then every once in a while, we would get together as a team, maybe once every month or a couple months. We were told that there was going to be a lot more overview and more of the leadership checking in on us. It was clear to me that things were not all okay between the leaders, and we had... M leader Ari and his wife, and then there were also Ivorian leaders. So they wanted very much to connect with the local church and not just have it be, you know, American background people being in charge. So and all that sounds great. Like, and I think in theory on paper, it's a great thing. Our Ivorian leaders were really attentive and awesome people. One of the Ivorian leaders was uh, the pastor of the church I was connected with and another one was our French teacher and they and both their wives were really supportive people as I went through my story and to this day have shown nothing but compassion, support, and a lot of empathy. They've they've gone through a lot of the same things that I experienced, unfortunately.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry. So while you're there, you've kind of gotten us up to this point where you are now in a host family. Where did mm-hmm. you go for support if you needed support? If Did you have anything <laughs> arise where you were sitting there like, what do I do? Where do I go? Help.
2: <laughs> yeah, I laugh because <laughs> that's a great question. I think it's important to paint a picture of the, the relational dynamics of what was going on and a little a couple of the events because the big issue was that There was an extreme culture of fear. Unclarity isn't a word, but whatever the word is for that, like confusion. Yeah. We arrive, we're doing our classes, we're learning, we're getting to know our teammates. And we are living on the same campus with Leader R and his wife. And it becomes clear to me from the moment I step off the plane, something's not right with the Leader R, like I got a vibe and... It was started out as unfriendliness specifically towards me. We, I don't know why. And I, I brush it off as, well, maybe he's just a, overwhelmed by my American friendliness. Like I'm an extrovert. That can be a lot for some people. I'm not going to not gonna worry about it. But I did. <laughs> and the longer I was in Boquete at Mission Baptiste, the more I sensed tension between P and M and Leader R and his wife, mostly between Leader R and... P&M, the animosity coming from Leader R and p m trying to be peacemakers and Leader R's wife trying trying to figure it out. It was like she was married to someone who had a lot of anger. And, and I think that's what I was picking up on. I was picking up on a lot of anger and I started to hear, do you know how Christians <laughs> try to like gloss, we try to gloss over people who have deep emotional problems who aren't dealing with it as we sometimes grace wash things or- forgiveness, I don't know, spiritually bypass crap, I guess. It's just, I didn't know what it was at the time, but it's been 10 years. So now I know what it was. They would say that leader Aria is Ivorian. That's why he's gruff when he would say things that were not just blunt, but like hurtful and lacking any kind of empathy or compassion. And, And he would, I mean, the best way to characterize him is, was a bully. He is a bully and that's how he treated people. He Not just young young adults, he treated his fellow missionaries that way. And they would try and make excuses for him. And I think that PNM, I honestly think that they were put in place to be a buffer for him. Because I think somewhere in some leadership, they knew that Leader R was neither did he want to be working with young adults, nor did he feel like he had time, but definitely was not temperamentally or spiritually equipped for that. PNM had such have have a big heart for young adults, and I think they were used as buffers. So that's to say, we were told one thing by one missionary couple, and then that missionary couple, PNM, had to go home on what we call furlough and missions. It's like a, an extended break to raise support. Sometimes, you know, you lose support or you go with not all your support and you have to go back. Or you just need vacation. You just need to get away, which is healthy. We were left with Leader R and his wife as our leaders, and there was just a lot of confusion as to when we were allowed to do anything. Basically, his philosophy was you stay in your host family. If you come back to Wake for any reason, you're a failure. Like, it was never explicitly said, but that is that is exactly what, what the expectation was. Like, you knew it from things he would say. And that is the exact opposite of what PNM, how they viewed and what they told us. And as a young adult, you're You know, I went to college for this, like I want to do well. I don't know what's healthy. I don't know really how to stick up for myself at that point. And even the adults who you think would know better who are older had a hard time sticking up for themselves in front of this guy. So P and M really encouraged us. If you ever need a break, if you're feeling culture shock, if you need to recoup in it at any way, you can go from your host family, just let them know, and you can come back to Bake and you can recharge in the dormitory. I think because of what they'd gone through in East Africa, they went through a genocide situation, like they understood self-care a little bit better. But once they left, it honestly felt like I could feel the floor drop out underneath me, like I was being dropped into a lion's den. And every time I was around leader, R. I didn't know if I was going to get kindness or anger. Yeah, there's a lot more to unpack there, uh, but that's... That's basically the what happened whenever we felt like we needed support is the answer was you're weak, basically, if you need it and you shouldn't you shouldn't need it. Mm.
0: So if we paint a picture, you're staying with your host family and you aren't really giving any guidance about what you're supposed to do, except just be with your host family. And there's there's co-leadership and PNM leave, which leaves leader R as the sole leader yeah. left in his the his
2: wife also. Okay. Um, oh, and his wife. But she definitely okay. took an ancillary role. Mm-hmm.
0: What was the dynamic like with your host family
2: then? Mm, they were awesome. <laughs> uh, okay. I say that, though, with a caveat that it's really hard to live with another family, even if you speak their language and know their culture. And so there's always some road bumps there. I was learning French and... My first night, my host brother, who was, he was an adult and he lived in a uh, an attached house. He and his wife are awesome. They, they fed me fish and it had like the full head on. And like, I have a hard time with fish, even the best of times. And so like, he was, he was being very boisterous, which is kind of a cultural thing. He was joking in French, like, eat, eat. And I started crying. <laughs> and like and he just looked mortified like oh no I made the American girl cry uh and but that but he was so sweet afterwards like he's it's a very tender family like I had a very a lot of love but I was also experiencing an insane amount of anxiety from culture shock and having very little direction on what I was supposed to be doing and I think in some ways, my educational background in intercultural studies made me hyper aware of all the things that I could do wrong. And then whenever I would do one of those things wrong, leader R was very quick to point it out. So when I'm living in that, in my host family, I was, I just didn't feel like I had any support. No matter how much love my host family could give, they, they didn't have an experience with uh, a foreign exchange student as such before, you know, like it, it was new to them and they did everything they could, but you also don't have a lot of mobility, so, like, it's, it was very discouraged for us to visit each other, like, my other teammates in that town. So it, you felt incredibly isolated, and, yeah, it was like if you visited anyone, you were you were looked down upon. And so they wanted you to, like, find—honestly, I, I don't know why—what <laughs> they were thinking, but they wanted you to find something to do in your local church eventually, and— there wasn't really a place in my church where I felt like I could connect and plug in. My relationships ended up being more at the seminary, which was on a, uh, connected to a church in a different part of town with another teammate of mine, and that will come in later. And I remember that making very mad and felt like I had insulted my host church, and it was it was complicated and hard. Yeah,
1: what is like the culture? For women within World Venture, but then also, what's the culture like being a woman in that context in general? I've thought about this
2: a lot, especially in the past five years. Within World Venture, it has a Baptist background. I believe it has a complementarian philosophy. That's not how I was raised. I was raised in the Covenant Church, which is very egalitarian. I had experienced some of it at Northwestern. I don't remember seeing any women in leadership if they weren't married. It was just, it was very patriarchal at World Venture. I definitely felt as a woman, a young woman on this team, I was secondary to the two young men who were also on my team. There's a big part of what happened to me that involved one of my male team members and his struggles and how that affected especially the women on the team in Cote d'Ivoire, it's a very patriarchal society. And so that I can—I was prepared to expect that. Uh, and I did have a couple things happen that because I was, you know, if I wasn't a woman, it wouldn't happen to me. But being catcalled on the street, we were, you know, we were taught how to deal with that. We were taught, you know, kind of what's expected. It just patriarchal Baptist denomination fit very well with some of what was already in Ivorian society. I did not see that play out in a lot of the healthy Christian marriages with Ivorians. It was actually much more egalitarian and healthy. In Leader R's marriage, it was really difficult to watch that situation. So I don't know if that's exactly what you're getting at, but uh, that's just a brief.
1: Yeah, I think that's helpful. I also think it's really fascinating and beautiful and could be a whole other discussion, just that within the different marriages how you could see that dynamic play out within that culture that's fascinating and was probably beautiful to watch
2: yeah it's it's really beautiful now I know my French teacher and his wife they actually came and visited us here recently uh and watching their marriage and my marriage like grow together and their journey with fertility and our like
1: it's it's been really beautiful
2: yeah good those are my most treasured relationships
1: that's so sweet. I think that we needed that context just to understand like where you're, you're at in this. Where does Shasta sit in the midst of all of this going on? So you kind of have a lot stacked, a, a lot of heavy things stacked, maybe not against you, but on your shoulders is maybe how I would say it. You are very young, scared, <laughs> in a whole new country with what feels like no support if you ask for support or help you are told you're weak and you're in what is already a patriarchal culture with extra added religious patriarchy piled on top of that that's a lot for a 23 year old (laughs) kid to be dealing with i it's so like as you were saying that I remember
2: thinking, it just brought me back to the memory of after P M left thinking, where's the adult? Like, isn't there an adult going to step in and like, is anyone <laughs> seeing this? Because like a lot more has happened, like a lot has happened. I just kept looking around and being like, wait a second, the only other person, there are only two other people older than me on my team, and they're not seeing what I'm seeing. Am I the adult? I should not <laughs> be the adult. And so I remember looking around for other adults and, like, they were Ivorian and there's a power dynamic relationship there because they are being paid by this mission organization and they are also, there's, like, a a really unfortunate but historical, like, it's a white mission organization that's paying them and they are not Western. And so there's, there's a deference there that would, st- and also culturally you don't, in Cote d'Ivoire, you don't, deal with conflict head on like we would here and so the other adults who are ivorian like they they weren't really in a position to do anything about what i experienced and saw so it really was i was like okay i guess by the time i left i was like it is the is this person who has to make the choices and change and that was a huge growing up moment and absolutely terrifying and caused a lot of trauma
1: you know, that I've been able to work through, but it's hard. It sounds so overwhelming just imagining being in that position. I think Jay and I can both somewhat imagine being in that position. Jay, you got the whole dude thing going for you, but still, regardless, oh, dude, you, <laughs> you didn't really have any agency. So you couldn't yeah. even make what felt like the right decision for you in this space because you yeah. weren't the boss of the decisions you're making. So you're really alone, but yet you're still beholden to this organization, in particular your leader. And mm-hmm. but yet you can't ask for help. That's just a horrible it sounds it makes me have anxiety for you. I, yeah, I just have this heart for if if I could stand in front
2: of a graduating class of missions majors at Northwestern, I would just, I would my heart just is like, you have you have a voice and you matter because there's so much pressure especially spiritually to be an ace missionary who knows the culture who who knows the right things to say who's not going to make an ethnocentric mistake and who is going to preach the gospel there's so much spiritual emotional pressure it's like whatever you whatever you feel going into your first great you know your dream job out of college add god into the mix add your spirituality into the mix and that's what you're facing and then make your boss abusive i just it's
1: just so yeah it's a lot that's so heavy i have one more question and then i want to move out of the culture aspect and into a little bit of the things that you experienced over there and that brought you to this podcast how were host families vetted um great question (laughs) i
2: don't know for sure uh we were so when I was talking about how there's this push and missions to move away from ethnocentricity and to really partner with local organizations, that's like wonderful and beautiful on paper, but it's also messy. And my understanding is that the local church chose the family. And in my case, great choice. Really awesome choice. In the case of one of my teammates who lived closer to the border with Molly, a really life-threatening choice and another teammate ended up being a very difficult, not, not a great choice. Uh, and then another one plays into my story. She lived in my town. Also not a great choice. And I understand that that can happen no matter where you are. But uh, my understanding is that the local church chose a family. And my family was friends with my past, the pastor of my church, so he knew them pretty well.
1: And that was great. Goodness, that just makes me so anxious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. You you know, you have just sounds like very minimal oversight happening in general. So and then you ask for help. You're seen as weak. So if there's anything happening Mm -hmm. within these host family dynamics and you're a young, Mm
2: -hmm. very
1: vulnerable, impressionable person. Naive. Don't Naive. Don't understand, yeah, like that just you know. sounds like a disaster, a dangerous disaster waiting to happen in some yeah. situations. It almost feels like you're lucky if you get a situation that isn't
2: yeah. unhealthy. As an adult now, I would be able to recognize things and I would be able to advocate for myself. Um, and if I had a healthy leader, if there was an issue, I would feel, you know, ideally comfortable we bringing it to them because no, no situation is going to be perfect. I know that other organizations that do things like this, Peace Corps, foreign exchange programs, there's always going to be issues. But you have to have support system for people who are leaving their culture and going to live in another. You need accessible support.
1: And people engaged, asking questions, checking in, making sure yeah. that everything is going okay, making sure that there's not any danger happening mm-hmm. and that people are comfortable in the ways that any human being should be comfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable culturally, but there are some things that could concern me. I wouldn't send my kids into any random American's home, to be honest. I'd I'd probably be more scared (laughs) of that. And and it's not even, like, uh, on paper,
2: we were told that would happen. And maybe once... Someone checked on me once, and I did have the number of our leadership, but it was it was very clear that we were bothering them, and the relationship d- dynamic between our and his wife was very toxic. And she might be open to being there for us, but if he walked in the room, the mood changed, and it was yeah, they were very. There are many things that led to them being in that position, but they yeah, that, I mean I don't want to make excuses for abusive behavior uh, that I experienced, but they were definitely overburdened and overworked, which is very common on the, the mission field. Hmm. Well, talk, can, can you
0: can you talk to us about some examples of concerns you had early on with Leader R and his behavior that you started to maybe question that this was not a safe place for you?
2: I really appreciate the way that you guys are leading this discussion because my brain is going about 20 different directions. And so this is very helpful to be focused. <laughs> well, as I mentioned at the beginning, it was just kind of a presence. He, I could tell he was angry. He was short, curt. He would insult people, and you couldn't tell if it was a joke or not. And the excuse is always used that he was, quote-unquote, Ivorian, and that's why he was that way, which I personally find very insulting to Ivorian people. And I did not witness that behavior in the Ivorian church. I was just with leader art. Can
1: you also quickly clarify, because that has come up multiple times already. You said his parents were— um, American missionaries, right? So he was a missionary kid raised there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Was he white?
2: Yes. Kay. Yes. Leader Ari is white, I believe. His parents were from the West Coast. Not 100%. He was white, raised there. The joke was that he was Ivorian on the inside, white on the outside. And wasn't a very funny joke to me, but that was, that was a joke. Outside of the Ivorian church, I know that it's even more patriarchal, and there is, I mean, there's probably physical abuse, just like there is in the American church. There's probably physical abuse in the Ivorian church, but it was very patriarchal. There was, cultures are complex, and so there's forms of matriarchy too, but women in general did not have the power in Ivorian society. And so I was always confused that the joke was he was Ivorian on the inside because it certainly wasn't a Christian Ivorian. I mean, the leadership in the Ivorian church that I witnessed was loving and healthy and growing at least and that was not the case in his relationship with his wife or the way he treated other people he would denigrate P and M in front of other people particularly uh the husband P in front of us sometimes and that hurt personally because I love and knew uh missionary P and it was very strange to watch him not cower but like sink shrink and almost like he had a he had to bring himself up again. He would get hit verbally by leader Ari and have to process that. And then uh, I don't think that PNM were used to dealing with someone like him. They were people of a lot of grace. And so, yeah, he was a bully in a lot of what he did. I would say there were a couple of specific instances with me personally that I experienced. Would you like me to go through those or do you want to go through them? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. One specific example that really weighs on me uh, I had a team member who, she was the youngest member of our team. She was a bright spot, like lots of fun, really earnest. Uh, and I really respected she's a very honest person too. She she was in tune with herself and what she needed, way more mature for her age than I was. And she was not doing well. We were in the same town and... She was physically, medically not doing well. She had a serious medical condition due to the water where she was. And I believe that Leader A had checked on her and helped her go to the uh, dispensary or, like, the pharmacy and, like, the clinic to just kind of get checked up on once. But it was escalating. And there was this deep sense that you had to stick it out. And even though you were kind of told to get help if you needed, the real like milieu that you're swimming in was don't ask for help. You were being a burden if you were asking for help. And she she would just wait and we would wait until we were like in difficult situations before we would like reach out again. And I was sitting there in her room on the mosquito netting and we were praying. And she was really struggling with just like mental health too as anyone would as I was at that time too, with the stress we were under. And it reached a point where we felt we needed to speak to one of our leaders. So we went and we spoke to uh, someone involved with Journey Corps who we knew could help us. And it was an okay conversation, uh, but Leader R uh, entered the room when that was happening and was physically abusive to the person who we were speaking to. Uh, he hit this person in front of my teammate and I. And we were stunned. And I I, like, I don't even, we didn't have words. And this was particularly traumatic to my teammate. I mean, it was to me too, but uh, it was traumatic, especially to my teammate. And we left. We were shuffled out of the house by the the person who was uh physically hit and i went with my teammate to another house on the campus of where we were and uh we prayed and i sent a message to uh the person who was physically abused just letting them know that if they didn't report this then i would uh cuz it was not a safe situation and i was assured that it would be reported and uh, basically, it was brushed under the rug, and we never received any follow-up. This affected my teammate deeply, along with the medical issues that were really not taken super seriously. Uh, and she decided that she would write a letter to Leader R. And she asked me to come along, and Leader R and Leader A, his wife, were there. And she read that letter out loud, and it was received
1: When you say that you went with your teammate to read this letter, I'm assuming it kind of opened up conversation about her experience there and how she experienced Leader R. How was that received? Weird. I, like, Leader R's not,
2: he's not one note. He's a complex person. Like, he's not pure evil at all. Like, he he listened and his wife listened and there was remorse i don't know how deep that went um so that was encouraging to me and that's what makes it so hard because it you get like these little tiny lifeboats or life rafts like thrown to you like oh maybe i'm wrong like maybe it's fine and i was overreacting and it's going to be fine but then he would return to that behavior or i i think Honestly, I think that there was shame that we had witnessed that behavior from him, and he was subdued by that. And he was just wanting to get this done with and over with and wrapped up. And she would go home. And she was so brave, and I really respect what
1: she did. But yeah, I think that's what made it so hard is because it's not black and white all the time. Did anybody else get informed that Leader R had been physically violent? Is this something that you... That was kind of just like a known thing about his character. Yeah, Yeah. I I think that's one of the things that makes me so
2: mm, passionate to speak up is that at the time we did not know. As I was preparing to leave early and I was sharing my story with other people who had been students of his, more stories came out to me. I heard more stories of when he had Mm -hmm. been his anger had manifested into physical violence and I honestly do not know if world venture knows that I trusted that the person who had experienced it was going to let someone know and I I it's complex like it's not my it wasn't my job to speak for that person but also because of the dynamics in that relationship I am not sure that it was shared or taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's really heavy. Gosh. Yeah, that's really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And like, in some ways, it was incredibly like, it felt like, okay, I have a bad feeling about this person. Is it my fault? Am I just being prejudiced? Am I chumping the gun? is like, am I feeling anxious and I'm just projecting? And mm. when you hit someone else, that's a clear line. And so it was mm. confirming for me, like, nope, I do not care for this person. And, and yeah. you know, 30-some-year-old Shasta now would be like, not only do I do not care for this behavior, this is criminal and not okay. Yeah. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell someone. But 23-year-old Shasta was like, oh, everyone struggles. Like, it's, they're going to have it, you know, taken care of and that's not okay. And I don't like him, but it's not my job.
1: And it it is complicated for me then. And now it's more clear. In that culture is like a physical altercation, something that is kind of a norm in society, would you say? Like, did you witness this in other spaces or was this really confined to Leader R's character which is not an excuse either way, but I'm just curious if this is like a common thing that you were experiencing during your time there. That's a great question. I would say that
2: in some circles, corporal punishment is not uncommon, especially when there's a power imbalance. So I witnessed parent to child corporal punishment not as much in the Christian church, and I would say that it is not condoned in the Christian okay, Christian spheres. To. Yeah, so this was not appropriate. Whether he was, you know, even though he was raised there, it's not appropriate. Like it's not okay.
1: Right. It's there's no excuse for it either way. But no. but it would like not even be common to see
2: either. Like, it's more, I think it's more accepted, like, for a professor to chuck something at someone's head because of the power imbalance, like, that yeah. they would not speak up about it. Or if they did, I think there'd be a lot of fear, whereas if it was, like, someone at my college threw something at my head, that would be the end of the line for them.
1: Yeah. They would yeah. probably get arrested. Yeah. And um,
2: that's that being said, I was only there for eight months, and right. I am a white woman, so That is just my own perspective, and I could not have the entire story. It's really important for me to point out, too, that it was shocking to my Ivorian colleagues that he was physically abusive. Like, that was not appropriate for the Christian church there either.
1: Did you detail this to anyone in the organization? Did you make anybody else aware of what you experienced? Is there any paper trail that you could say, like, hey, I made you guys aware and you didn't do anything about it?
2: Yeah, uh, so not only did I let P&M know uh, some of the information a bit later, I also told the psychiatrist that was there the entire situation. And then uh, in 2019, after I felt stable enough to even, like, go back to this part of my life, I reached out to P&M and said, basically... Is there anything I can do? And they gave me the name of someone who worked at World Venture, told me to write up their my story. And so it was incredibly painful. Like I was shaking as I was writing it. I wrote out the in, everything that happened in excruciating detail. It was very rough, like expletives included. Like I it was so I couldn't edit it. It was mm-hmm. so painful to write. I was like, I'm gonna take one pass at this. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got. And it's everything that I Remembered everything. I mean, I would verbally tell this story over to people in my life, so like the right. key points are solidified in in to my memory and the other teammates who I spoke to too. So like, just getting this all down on paper was really incredibly painful, um, but yeah. I'm really glad I did it. And I sent it off to this representative at World Venture, and I got a reply that said they received it and it was empathetic. Like, I'm sorry that you went through this. I bet that was really hard to write I'm going to speak to the international like the the person who would be uh in charge of the region for uh leader R and that's at least that's what I I think it was based on the title of the person he shared so I felt pretty confident in that I replied thank you so much for taking this seriously um it means a lot to me and my family and then he wrote back and said uh we are gonna conduct some interviews we want to do them face face to face so we're going to interview some of these people who are mentioned in your letter
1: and that was four years ago and nothing happened no. that you know of no. and i just want to be like direct that you detailed seeing physical violence happen yes and in my world <laughs> that would be something that should get you at minimum fired. fired yeah 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 it would and it should and that's, that's not, not like a case. we'll work on this we'll work on this and like put you on a performance improvement plan <laughs> situation <laughs> oh but jada grace 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 there's grace <laughs> seriously
2: <laughs> sorry i'm laughing about it because otherwise i would lose my mind like yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's egregious, frustrating it's egregious and yeah um, Yep. There was no follow up. And the response, you know, just the feeling is like, don't ruffle feathers. Don't, you know, we've got it. You can Mm -hmm. just deal with it on your own. We'll take care of it. Mm
1: -hmm. But, you
2: know, why? At this point, it's like, why should I trust an organization that treated me as disposable?
1: Yeah. And they said they would follow up and they didn't. No, they didn't. You know, for a fact, Leader R is still in the same position he was in. Yep. Still wreaking havoc hmm. Yep. And you reported physical violence that you witnessed with your two eyes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, Like, you know, and I just. Uh, yeah. I, and like like I have mentioned, like, it's not like I want this person to be running in a dungeon. I just don't want them to be a leader or to be in the capacity of authority. And I, yeah, I, I want an apology. I want reconciliation, but I don't expect that to happen. So the second incident happened to me a couple months later, I was working with the remaining teammate in my city of Corgo we were working at the seminary, working with the children, they wanted to, the seminary wanted to provide classes for the mothers as well, which was really great, and so they needed childcare, and the place I found to fit in was to help out with the children with my other teammate, and she and I, it was pretty unstructured, we were making it up as we went along, and she was the oldest member of the team. I was the third oldest. And so we had some childcare experience and enjoyed singing with the kids and they taught us more French than anything else. So so after our time with the children, we went back to her place for lunch and her host father was there with two of their kids, two boys, and they also had a a nanny slash housekeeper situation. And her host father was a professor at the university and he spoke English. And so he was one of the people that was um, easier for us to communicate with. i had only spoken to him like once or twice before briefly. Uh, Laura spoke nothing but high praises for her host family. She really enjoyed them a lot. We were seated down for lunch and I was seated next to her host father and she was seated. uh, My teammate was seated across the table and... The two kids ate with us. So we finished eating. The two children went into the living room. It was an open floor concept and they were watching TV. They were pretty engaged. I honestly don't even think they would notice if anything happened. I was, uh, it's a pretty big table, so we weren't sitting close, but I was seated on the same side of the table as her host father. So my teammate gets a phone call. She walks up from the table. And goes out the front door, no more than five or six steps. It's very close. She goes onto the porch, and she's talking pretty loudly. As soon as she leaves, her host father turns to me, and touches my knee and starts speaking to me. Kind of, I think it was French and English. It was kind of a mix, and says, "I love you" to me, and my heart like skyrockets, and I go into fight or flight mode. Like I. It's not the first time this has happened in Cote d'Ivoire or, you know, in my life as a woman where I've been approached, but it's the first time um, someone's host father has done this, Uh, a Christian man has done this, a married Christian man. It was, I pretended like I didn't understand, which is partly true because like I wasn't super fluent in French at this point. And he then starts to like, it happened really quick, so I don't remember a lot, but I remember him like touching my waist And I got it from the table. I was just like shaking. And also, again, in these moments, you get some sort of clarity. And I just yelled my teammate's name very loudly. We were told not to be alone in the room with a male as women in any circumstance. And I didn't think I was alone in a room. We were having lunch, it was very open house. There are people either in the room with us or very close. Shouldn't matter, but that's, you know, what we were taught. So that was going through my mind. And I just walked out the door and I think I was on the verge of tears, but I was also livid again. I was like, what is, what, what is with these guys? Like, I just, I just had a sense of like, this is not okay in any circumstance. And I'm scared. Like, I'm scared for what's going to happen. And he had crossed the room And sat on the couch as soon as I yelled my teammate's name and he started bawling. I don't know what he was going through his mind, but deep sorrow and I didn't have any anger towards him. I just wanted to get out of there. And so we left and we went and spoke to my pastor. At this time, leader Ari and his wife were not in our city again. They were away again. That was pretty common that they were not around and so we and they encouraged us to speak to our ivorian leaders and i think in some ways that's a really great thing but it also i think was a cover for the fact that they didn't have time for us and they had too much going on and and frankly other inter- like rod had was very uninterested in leading our group and so nor skilled for us and we spoke to my pastor who handled it very well i felt cared for and supported and listened to and I imagine there was a lot of fear going through his mind like the like cultural dynamics the racial dynamics going on like I do not envy his position but he is very gracious it is common in I culture for someone to beg for your forgiveness and so he set up a time I did not know this was going to happen in this way but the the host father I think it was the next day or so came to the pastor's house I was there, my teammate was there, he, the The host father got on his knees and begged for his, my forgiveness, and it. I was extremely not comfortable with that. I think now I would have said, no, I, I don't want to see him, um, not because I felt unsafe even, it just, I would have needed more time to process, but there was a lot of pressure I put on myself to do the culturally appropriate thing and to respect that situation and to forgive and i have a lot of compassion for him from what i understand that i was not the first time and even from a recent visit from someone who lived there uh, an Ivorian who lived there with us this is definitely not the first time like he has had um, infidelity and marital issues his entire marriage and my understanding is that was well known too and i'm very shocked that my teammate was put in that situation that happened. And it, it was fine. Like, I don't feel trauma from... Did they move your teammate after no. that? It was left up to her to make that choice. I don't think it should have been. I mean, she is a grown woman, so she can make her own choices. I think that's important. But I really don't think it should have been encouraged for the sake of that man and his marriage, Not let alone to speak of my teammate.
1: Yeah, I was like, she's. Yeah. that's
2: not really safe for anyone. Yeah. It's super not safe for anyone. Uh, And P and M, when they returned to the field, felt the same way. They felt that she should not have been allowed to continue in there. Um, And I agree 100%. But all that was crappy, but nothing compared to how I felt when Leader R and, and his wife returned. I want to note, too, through all of this, I did not know if I could tell my teammates what Leader R had done about what had happened to me with my teammates host dad, because I didn't know if I was going to be believed. I had gotten the vibe that I was not believed, not necessarily from my teammates intentionally, but definitely not from leaders. Uh, I think that leader R had a lot to do with that, but also my teammates were all young like me, younger than me, except for two. And so They didn't know what to do with any information I would share. And they they were listeners and compassionate, most of them, Uh, the vast majority, you know, except for one, which we'll get into later. But I don't think they knew what to do either. So it was was just the fact that my teammate was there to witness what happened was a relief to me because it it felt like finally someone can see what I'm going through. But all of them were also not prepared, whether it's because of their conservative, like, complementarian backgrounds or whatever it was, just being young, like... No one was prepared to handle what I was describing was happening. And so finally, leader Ari and his wife come home and we have a meeting. and my pastor was there. My teammate was there, and leader Ari and leader I explained what happened. His wife was compassionate to me. She was always compassionate, but she flip-flopped very quickly, which is common in when you're in an abusive situation, like she was compassionate. And the first question that came out of Leader R's mouth to me was, what were you wearing? And my mind exploded. I can laugh about this or, you know, talk about this, you know, sarcastically now, but I could not talk about this situation for five
1: years without shaking. That makes sense. And just so you know, laughter is normal. We talk about that a lot. I think sometimes on the podcast, we'll get notes like, why are you laughing? Like, we'll get like a thing, like, why cause cause why are it's you a in the guest? Yeah. And I've yeah. I've quoted I can't remember who it was, but there's a quote that says Laughter is the language of survivors. And I think mm. that I, literally every story <laughs> that comes out, it's like you what are you gonna do at this point, you just it's like a I don't I don't know. I think that quote yeah. sums it up. But it is what,
2: what else are you gonna do? Like cry, right. cried enough. <laughs> right. I know exactly.
1: To <laughs> exactly. Goodness. Okay, so yeah this is new for you to be able to even talk about it without having like a physical reaction. Yeah. Honestly, I have to credit listening to your
2: podcast and, and others like it dealing with survivors of spiritual abuse, like with normalizing, not in the sense that normalizing that it's okay, but normalizing that this happens. Like you're not alone. My awesome husband and you know, counselors and therapists and things like my inner jaw dropped when he said that. And I felt a stifled suffocated anger Because you're supposed to be gracious and loving and gentle and not jump to conclusions as a woman. And especially a Christian woman. Which is a bunch of bullshit to me now. But, like, that was very much, like, I wanted deep, I deeply wanted approval. I desperately wanted to do this well. And I should not have been looking to him as the arbiter of that. But I did. He had so much experience in this country. There was a part of me that thought, did I wear something inappropriate? And I was more clothed, not that it matters. I was more clothed than most Ivorian women were at the time. I had like a dress and pants on. And thankfully, his wife stepped in and said, that doesn't matter. And it's almost like she was admonishing him gently. Like, oh, you should have said that. (laughs) Like, I don't, I I think she came from a much less conservative background and married into this too. So I think some of it was hard for her to wrap her brain around, but I don't think she knew what to do. And so I just felt completely, like, again, the floor had dropped out from under me. My stomach was on the ground. Like, I just felt... I felt in trouble. I felt abandoned. I felt objectified. I felt so... I tried so hard to not get in trouble as a kid growing up, and it just felt like I I had built this character that people knew I was a truthful person and an honest and deeply caring, earnest person, and to have someone so deeply misunderstand me and not understand was... That was also really difficult. Somehow through... All, all that, you know, I still felt like this person was wrong, but I just didn't, I don't know why I didn't leave at that time. I should have left right then and there too, but I I kept going. And so that was the second major incident with me personally. How did you respond? Did you just tell him what you were wearing? Yeah. And then what happened? I think the, the general impression that I made was that the situation had to be handled for my teammate, which is great. But that, I was just brushed off as a pro- I was the problem. So there was no comfort or counseling for me at all.
1: So you just downloaded that information to them, get yep. victim shamed, and then sent yep. out on your way. Yep.
2: I mean, I think they created some rules, you know, like, they probably introduced more rules to, like, not being alone with, I don't know. Oh, I got asked, like, why were you alone with him again? Like, I was like, yeah, that was not my... <laughs> called to be alone with this person for a grand total of five seconds completely missing the point of why it was happening how it like it just completely now i have the language and like the constructs to understand how very much women are hated in certain sectors of christian culture i was literally a barnacle on this guy's back like he did not i was a problem for him so why would he i think he feigned a little bit of care or at least he went through the motions of like wanting his wife to maybe take care of me, but there was no follow-up at all.
0: What type of power did Leader R have in this country that allowed him to act like this or get away with this stuff?
2: Jay, I have so much to say on this topic. Okay. (laughs) But I'm going to try and keep it as concise as I can. Um, He was born and raised there so many years. And when you're a bully, you can maintain power. I remember a specific incident, he had been reported so many times, I I cannot count. Reported to world, world Venture, to World Venture by other missionaries. It was it was a joke that people. It had been, happened so much. It was a joke that people left because of leader R. He would make that joke, except it wasn't funny, and it was clear. Like P and M, basically, I think joined because. I know this, actually, based on um, accounts that were shared with me, that there were other people who were part of this program and a part of this field who left because of leader Ari extreme bullying that he did and practical jokes that weren't funny. And there was a the director of the region who I think I believe was based in Colorado, he might have been based in another part of Africa, but I know that he didn't live in our country. He came and he they do site visits as a, you know, like a region visitor. If you're in charge of Africa, you visit uh, your missionaries around. I visited with Leader R. I don't know the, the conversation, but it, it really very much felt to me. And based on things that my Ivorian leaders have shared, that Leader R knew how to put on a show and say the right thing. And what he would do, which is funny, is what he accused me of doing later, is he will denigrate others around him who are who are speaking up about him. And he will try to drag the, their reputation in the mud and say cutting things about them to leaders so that they trust him first because he has experience. And because, I mean, he has an Ivorian name. They call him Basuliman. Like, he preaches, he speaks... And if you're not there and you don't witness it, he can, he can confuse you. He can, this is also a trend I've noticed in other parts of my Christian walk in other uh, Christian spaces is, I don't, I don't know the terminology for it. So maybe if you know, you, you can speak into this, but we like to err on the side of grace for people and we turn a blind eye for a very long time. And we say, well, everyone is broken. It's some sort of weird spiritual equalizing, like sin, I think sin leveling is what it's called. If everyone's flawed and everyone's broken, well, these are just leader R's rough edges. And he brings so much to the table culturally and experientially. Why would they get rid of him? And he's a bully himself. So if you're underneath him and you speak up, he will, he will destroy your reputation. He will torture, like, not actually torture you, but like emotionally torture you. I wish I could like Download some of my memories into everyone who listens to this, the things that I saw. It's similar to what you see, you know, in abusive workplaces too. It's no different except on the mission field. There's so much less accountability because you're so far away from anyone who understands the culture, the mission culture and what's happening. The dynamics are even heightened because there's so much, so much going on. And you
0: have God stacked on it, which is a total mind F. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Oh,
1: And I think that's that as we've like started to get more stories out of missions organizations, that's been something that has been continually coming up is a lot of us from abusive church Spaces will we can relate with this like walking on eggshells feeling, and that's a common term I think just in therapy in general. Therapists will say talk about that feeling of like anxiety and walking on eggshells around a person. But the difference is, is you're living in like soul livelihood, everything is attached to that person. And even those of us on church staffs in America, where that those are all factors, it's still different than when you're completely isolated from everything, everyone you know, and you're solely dependent to get to your next day on this person. And so that has been a common theme that we've heard from missionaries that are in these situations with abusive leaders. It's not unique that there's abusive leaders in these spaces. No. (laughs) Because systemically. (laughs) It's a human problem. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. what is unique is that there is God involved. So you have a religious component. You have all of those pressures and religious language shaping how you're allowed to respond. Yes. And then also that you are totally alone. Just yes. completely, utterly alone. And in an, in another country. <laughs> and yes. so many, every missionary we have spoken to is like in that 23-year-old or younger age range. And that is also something that I find predatory. Yeah, yeah. it's it's concerning. <laughs> it's concerning because you're all so, you're extra vulnerable. Like you're talking about with us, Going now, you would have a different life experience. You would have wisdom. You would know right from wrong a little bit more than at that age. But you're even saying even people that were older were responding the same way you were. Yes, yeah. So yes, absolutely. Sixty year olds. Mm -hmm. No,
0: we've we've like I've I've been rethinking about this and reading up on it when I can. But like to me, like at least from my perspective, growing up, there was so much shame in my theology. That no matter what happened to me or what I saw, I would always say, well, I'm somehow wrong. So when I- exactly. So I hear your story and I'm like, that has to be like times a thousand over there, where no matter what you see, you're thinking, I've got to be wrong somehow. Like I'm missing something. And like, I think that is the biggest, uh, this is me talking. I think that is the biggest thread for, I guess you call it deconstruction or trying to figure out- who God is or who Jesus really was. And then what we've made God and Jesus into is like reconciling and reckoning with our shame, the shame that we've put into religion, people, humans. Yeah. And it just is such a mental health thing that it creates such a mental health crisis in us because it, shame is bad in general, but then now you put God on top of that and now your soul is in jeopardy. And so it's just I can only imagine like you like you're hearing the story. I'm thinking of like the amount of shame your body carried and like it probably was like multiplied times a thousand when you were over
2: there. I really love the phrase you used that maybe I'm the one who's wrong. That was the main thought going through my head the entire time. It was not just insecurity. it, It was almost like. I am so young, naive, broken. I have anxiety. I must be wrong. I must be wrong because there's no way that they would ever allow an abusive leader. like that. Why would a mis- missionary not remove abusive people? So I must be the problem. I must be doing something wrong. And yet everything inside of me was battling that and being like, nope, hitting's never okay. Nope. Sexual harassment's never okay, and it's not your fault as a woman, but yet I am new to this space. I don't know what's going on, and because I had been swimming in this conservative church culture for so long, since college, I had slowly let little pieces of my voice go into hiding and fall away sometimes I wonder if fresh out of public school Shasta would have been stronger than the one who had gone through like four years of, you know, Christian college. And I had a lot of really awesome experiences. I met a lot of wonderful people at college, but there was also this mm, miseducation in the complementarian spaces. I um, I am in Minneapolis and Bethlehem Baptist, John Piper's church uh, had a very big impact on most of the students who went to my school. And I was completely Naive to any of the desiring God theology before going to college. And then I got inundated with some of it. And I never, I never swallowed it, but I swished some of it around in my mouth. And I think some of that (laughs) complementarianism, sorry, it's kind of a gross metaphor, but like it kind of rubbed off on me and led me to be much more permissive of this and, and led me to be much more timid and, and not let my voice come out, not let the image of God. And truth shine through me as quickly as I might have had I not gone through that experience before entering this mission field. And I I mourn for that Shasta. Like, I grieve for that 23-year-old girl who knew what was happening around her was wrong and was too afraid to say something. I'm glad that I've gone through that because I'm not like that anymore. I, You know, God, he's really shown me so much about – he's taught me a lot about trusting myself and not – and trusting his voice and not looking – to the left or to the right sometimes, like I used to all the time. And it was the prime age to do that when you're out of college, looking for guidance. But
1: yeah, something that I think I've noticed in our conversations even is, as you've described it, it was like this constant seeking, am I being misunderstood? Like, if I just change the way I engage, <laughs> yes. will will things get better. And I related with that so much on our phone calls, like, Oh my gosh, I feel like I've lived so much of my life with that. Just searching for like, this feels so wrong and it has to be me engaging in a way that this person is not understanding. So if I just pivot how I engage, then I can fix the wrongness of this situation. And it is this perpetual putting it on yourself the wrongness and the responsibility of fixing these things when mm-hmm. you had no you had no ability to do that because no part of you what was was what was wrong in that situation you aren't the one that decided to dismiss a 23 year old girl when she came to you and told you that she was being sexually harassed in a host family situation like, like. the
2: shapes we contort ourselves into I think that's one of the biggest lessons in my 30s is like realizing I don't have to do that. Like you were saying in your processing is that maybe I'm not the problem here. Like that simple phrase, that simple question, maybe I'm not the actual problem. And these institutions institutions that we venerate, I mean, so much. Missions and missionaries are put on pedestals and, you know, martyrdom is like the holiest, you know, sacrifice, sacrificial service. And yet that does not mean you're going into a healthy situation doesn't mean that people are uh, walking like Christ just because they're a missionary. Absolutely doesn't mean that. And
1: I think it's another thing when you're saying that white colonized Christianity that we were all steeped in and raised up in, when you're thinking of missionaries, you think those are the the top Jesus followers, right? Of the <laughs> faith. Like, yeah, mothers yes. of the faith. Or like <laughs> they are... As close to perfect as you can be if you're going and being a missionary overseas. And you're, you're really the mindset you have is you're going to save the mm. people there that are it's in so much sin and so broken and need Jesus. So, so really, I can see this perfect storm for these young missionary kids like you and like Kat and like Dylan, these other stories that we've heard. Where even with your schooling and college, that's just in the back of your mind. Like you're going with a team of people who've got it together. We're educated. We love Jesus. We're on fire. We're gonna go. We're not gonna be these white colonizer missions. We're even gonna turn that paradigm
2: on its head. You know, I mean, right. we will we'll do it right. We'll we'll live with people and we will not be arrogant. You know, even that you're. Well, it's an impossible, it's impossible like uh, bar to me. You are gonna f up like that's gonna happen but there's that pressure i mean i think it's very natural when you come from a place of privilege and wealth like we do i went into a situation when it was not my first rodeo like i had been in a lot of this was a midterm. There's three different kinds. There's short-term missions, midterm missions, and long-term. This is a midterm stint, a year to two years. So I'd been in situations where I'd seen poverty before. This was on a different level because I was living in it and experiencing it. And I, I went through this deep sense of overwhelm. And it's very common just to feel completely helpless and powerless. There's so much reverse culture shock and guilt when you think about leaving because... You're going back to privilege. I remember getting mad at my mom. She bought a new king size bed when I got home, and I was like livid. Or there's just this huge pressure to sacrifice it all for the Lord and to be to completely humble yourself. And leader R preyed upon that in me and in others. He preyed upon our desire to do what's right. And it allowed him to feel powerful and to have control over us because we would listen to him and sit at his feet when we shouldn't have. And we would doubt our own voice because he was wiser. He'd live there longer. We were doing it wrong. And he would collect young men around him to mentor. And I think it gave him a sense of control. And he would like people and very much not like others. And I wonder if it had something to do with how much he felt he could control them or if they were going to be a problem for him. This, I'm one story, I know two other young women who I went to school with in the same year who came back with very similar experiences of this pain. So it's just so common on the mission field.
1: If you took that story and just plopped it into a little young restless reform church here in the U S like that is literally every pastor <laughs> that the stories are about too. I know. It's just like imagining giving pastor H just free range in another country with a t- team of young people. This is, it's just, or anybody
0: within like that. Yeah. Like, uh, I even think about like, like with the Chandler stuff that came out earlier this year and how that was so excused away and he was welcomed back with like open arms and, you know, you talk about sin leveling or whatever that is. I, I call it bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah, that's so, another word for it. <laughs> so, but it, it's just, it's very similar. And it's, it all, to me, it just goes back to the root of our th- our theology and, and who we've made God to be and who we've made Jesus to be. And I don't think they're either of those things. And a lot of it has to do with our, I think, to, to my point, to our to the fact that it is a white centric faith that was built off of being successful on the backs of other people um, versus, you know, I mean, that's how the Southern Baptist started, right? It was because they wanted Mm -hmm. slave traders to be able to serve in the mission field. So we started a nomination where it's okay to have slavery and we've just never repented of those sins of putting our, who we are as people race and as a male, I'm a white male, white male, Putting us at the top of everything and creating, creating, you know, our, our, I guess the way we view our faith uh, and the way we interact with other people out of that, um, out of that lens. Now that's my opinion. I'm not like a theology guy. But
1: and what was so hard is that's all true, Jay. Yeah. yeah. And Shasta knew all that to a degree, as much as a 23 year old who went to school and like trained for that knew that. But then this leader, like, used that to keep the team and shasta weak so that's what's so hard we literally had
2: classes about colonialization we literally leader R taught us about like why missionaries have been so detrimental to especially uh, like african believers and like the african church like we had classes and we learned about this and yet that same power dynamic was used to oppress people under him like it's not you don't you don't just like get rid of it through education well
0: and i like he's white so like that like in my head i'm like he's white he's a white guy doing
2: There were there were ivorians talked about it too so it was so but that also
0: is weird to me too like there's a lot of stuff i could get into there but i don't want to i'll probably get in trouble so i'm just gonna be quiet but but you know i mean (laughs) The, qu- the question I have, I'll get us back on topic. You mentioned something about there was favorites. And I do want to get into ultimately why you left and how you left, because I'm sure that was a shit show. Before yes. we
2: move on, do you mind if I share something? Um, and when I share it, I don't mean to th- this to be in contradiction to what you're saying. I just, I want to do justice to this real story. What happened is that I actually saw s- there were in beautiful contrast to leader R and his wife, there was a mission couple- who were Bible translators. And the way that she organized and participated in her Bible translation team was so egalitarian and done culturally appropriately. And her name is Linnea, and her husband's name is Glenn, and I spent some time with them while I was there, and you walked into their house and you felt peace, and you felt love. Mm. And she she showed me around her their Bible translation place and how she... She not only, like, uh, organized it so that, like, there were people from Cinepho culture, which is they were doing some translations in Cinepho, which was the main people group we were living with, but, like, people of different dialects, men and women, and, like, it was totally a group effort. And there's always going to be issues just being a white person in a non-white space, but you could tell she was actively working to... Contradict that as a six-year-old woman who had like no right to know this stuff, she was doing it, and it was it was really beautiful. So I just want to like say there is. Hope I agree. Out there. it's not all doing. No, I agree. <laughs> not like that. No, that's no, what no. you're saying. but no,
0: I appreciate that because I think that's.
2: I hope that can be encouraging. No, I think that's
0: very encouraging, and I actually appreciate you saying that because a lot of times when we get in these stories, uh, there are people that are doing it the right way, and and you know. And it's beautiful to hear that and like frankly like I would love to hear more stories about people that are in those contexts doing things like that because that is the way of Jesus. You know that is the way it of is. what Christ would do. Christ was very much about being present in that moment with the people that he
1: was at. So and leveling power he 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 went into situations and leveled power which was I mean, that's, that's what I would love to see. Really important. In these, yes. And especially in missions.
0: I was going to, so what I was going to ask is the, fa- before we get into how you left, there was a story that you told us that I think we, I would like to share. So you said leader R was good at picking favorites and typically some, those were men. And there was an interesting interaction that you had with a male teammate, teammate. And I would love for you to share that story. And then the reaction uh, that leadership had when you, when you uh, tried to approach them about that. Uh, situation
2: yeah uh the leader r had favorites most of them are men or women who had more masculine traits um who were younger had more masculine traits so like enjoyed sporty things were adventurous um or they had things in common with him so one particular person george was uh treated special, I believe, because he was a boy. He was a guy. Uh, He was a couple years younger than me. I think he was 21. And I met him at the airport. And it it was right when we were about to leave as a team for Cote d'Ivoire. We had not really met each other before. And I met him at the airport. And we had gotten there early, us two, like 10 minutes early. So we were chatting. We go to Cote d'Ivoire. And after a little bit of orientation in denver and we arrived there it's like any sort of situation where you're meeting a bunch of new people everyone's making friends the boys and girls are separated in different dormitories same building different halls and all the girls go down one hall and there were uh 10 women and two boys and so two guys went off to the other hall. And George's background, I think he came from a conservative Baptist um, upbringing. He was homeschooled. His mother uh, raised them. I don't know how much interaction he had socially, uh, but I know that we came from very different backgrounds. And I'm used to making friends with everyone no matter their gender. I mean having appropriate boundaries no matter you know whatever situation you're in. but it was not abnormal for me to have friendships with guys. And so we were friendly, but then when we split into these dormitories, I focused my time on my new roommate and making our rooms nice for, like, a couple days, getting to settle it in. He very soon, after, like, a couple days, stopped speaking to me. I had no idea why. Like, we didn't have any interactions outside of team situations.
1: Can you explain what that, when you say stopped speaking to you, like, noticeably stop speaking to you like you would say something would not respond when I said something to them
2: yeah and not only is that rude like in American culture where we are from it's rude especially rude in Ivorian culture greeting someone is very important so not only is this like in my own cultural context not okay like it's extremely rude and it hurt my feelings like I didn't know what was going on and I had we had all worked so hard to be there. We were finally there. And it was like, it was starting to disrupt classes. And it was this presence. And it it spread from me to all the girls. Stop speaking to us. And I, I think by the end, it was almost everyone he just stopped speaking to. We had no idea why. And we had approached him a couple times to be like, hey, what's going on? Did we offend you? Can you tell us? And we were just met with silence. And I thought, well, does he have a... Um, a developmental or social anxiety. Maybe that's what's happening. Like, I don't want to assume he's being mean. We're grown-ups. I was 23. I'm not a child anymore. Like I'm young, but I'm not a child. Like, we don't do this. Like, this is a profession in a pseudo-professional situation. And this is his behavior was middle school. I was told to ignore it. Everyone was told to ignore it. Uh, we brought it up to P and M. And we were just told to let it go. And that was very difficult for me because it was in your face all the time. And I treated this like a job in many ways. This is unprofessional in every way. And and it's unloving besides the fact that it's unloving and not part of Christian community. But like we are here to work together as a team and to support one another. And you're literally not speaking and you won't say why. And it w- in addition to the bullying from Leader R, there was this presence of uh, my teammate Georgia's behavior. And the response from leadership was incredibly, incredibly disappointing. But I felt like I had to accept it because I was not a leader. They explained that he didn't have enough responsibilities. And he- if he was given more responsibility then he might man up in a sense. And this was even from coming from leaders who I loved and respected and just blows my mind to this day (laughs) to think that I, I mean, I didn't accept it. I didn't like it, but like, I just, what else was I going to do? Like I followed the proper channels to deal with it. And it it was just, like there was no place of rest in that, in that space, because every, even in your private space. You would you would be in your room and then you would walk into the common space. He would be there all the time on his phone or computer, not speaking to anyone. And was this right when you got there? Yeah, it started like day two. And there was a break when we were sent out into our homes. He was sent to a very remote village and they did that because they thought it would. So he was given more leadership roles in our group. And then when we were sent out, he was sent to a remote village because they thought it would, not like a punishment, but they thought it would, like, I don't know, discipline him into talking again, I guess. And this whole time I'm thinking, like, he needs to, if he's literally not even speaking to you, leaders, he needs to be sent home. Like, this is not the place for him. And I don't mean that in anger. I mean that, like, he just shouldn't be here. Like, Like, logistically,
1: (laughs) We're we're here to build relationships Sorry. with this yeah. people group.
2: Like, what's going on here? And we are grown up. Like, we're adults. This is not kindergarten. This is not elementary school. We can have a compassionate conversation about why you're not. And if, if there is a reason why you're upset and you're not okay, like, let's talk about it. Like, let's work through it. Like, there's grace for that. But let's. Did you ever find out
1: why? Yeah.
2: It, it got complicated um, and very deeply frustrating. So I was finding this like weird response from the leaders where they're like, he needs more leadership because he's a boy. And then they send him out to this village and he calls me. I don't know why. I mean, I, maybe he had called the rest of the team, but I'm pretty sure it was, I was one of the primary calls and he apologizes. Says that he, he said that he was hurt because we had stopped. He felt that we had stopped talking to him. And we'd stopped being friends with him when we arrived. And he was feeling... He didn't say this, but I mean, he was feeling envious and jealous or alone or abandoned. I I think it might have been his way of coping with culture shock. And somehow, I in particular, he... I I don't know if he told me then or if it was later, but he told me that he had feelings for me. And... From that,
1: like, two conversations that you had before he stopped talking to you? The two, yeah.
2: I was like, I... And this, I mean, if you're if you're a friendly, kind Christian girl, this is not an unusual experience you have in Christian spaces where someone who has not had a lot of interaction with uh, people of the opposite gender because of their upbringing or whatever, like, as soon as you smile, just as a friendly smile at them, you become their girlfriend. And that's a hyperbole. But, like, you – all of a sudden, you are – you belong to them without you even knowing. And you tread on their feelings and their ego – without even understanding what's going on. And I—that uh, that is what had happened. And so I, you know, in that call he, he gave me when we were sent out into our host families, it was very, I don't know how to describe it. It, it just was like, I don't have as much patience for, for this, especially now, but it's like another thing that I have to put up with. Like <laughs> That sounds ungracious, but like really, another thing I have to carry is your broken heart uh, somehow. And I think I would have been more compassionate about it if it, if he hadn't stopped talking to us. And I was kind in the conversation, but I I definitely, I was very frustrated with his behavior because it had hurt so many. And as time went on, um, he would do this again. So we, he would reconcile with us and other parts of the team, and then he would stop talking again. And what actually led to me leaving the field was we were living, uh, or we were on vacation as a team in Mali, Burkina Faso, Mali. And when I say vacation, it's not a party. Like, it just means you're not in your host family. But we were traveling and visiting other missionaries. Like, we went to the remote, the most remote place you can imagine. I mean, whatever you're imagining, multiply that. Like, is the most remote you can think. We were there. It was. We were visiting some project that Leader R had, like, was interested in. And it was with wild animals. And it was kind of a conservation project. But it also gave me, like, creepy, like, haunted house vibes. I don't know. It's another story. But <laughs> we had all gone on this trip. And the, this is when George had stopped speaking to us again. We thought we had resolved everything. So this behavior was starting again. And it was bumming everyone out. And it was just, like, hurtful. And we were all stressed. And my mother was scheduled to come and visit me from the U.S. to Cote d'Ivoire. They had a project, my family works um, in wildlife stuff, and they had a project in South Africa, and my mom was going to uh, kind of wrap this all into one trip. And so she was visiting me. And after this trip, I was going to go back to Boaque, which was frowned upon, but I needed to, it's a halfway point between Abidjan, where the airport was, and then Korogo, where my city was. So I was going to stay in Boaque, where Monsieur Baptiste, our dormitory was. It was around Easter. But almost the entire team... Wanted to come with as well and celebrate Easter together there. And that made me so nervous because I knew it would increase leader our anger. So they did it and we were all there, including George, or not all of us. There were a couple missing, but some were there, including George. And he had grown close to another uh, teammate who was in the same city as him. So when he stopped speaking to her in particular again, it was very upsetting for her. And I had already gone through a rigmarole with George, of like he had told me how he had feelings for me, even though he had a girlfriend back uh, in the states. Told me that he was interested. I felt super uncomfortable, so I just was kind of hands off at this point. But he started to hurt other girls, and they were younger than I was. And I had seen so much bad behavior on the field at this point that I felt like I was coming into my voice and I was coming into what I knew was okay and what was not okay. I knew that these other girls, based on what they were saying, just didn't know what to do with this situation anymore. So we felt like we'd exhausted speaking to the leaders. So she came back after trying to speak to George one more time, crying and in tears into my room. And I was like, okay, that's that's enough. We've dealt with enough of this. It's disrupting so much of our teamwork and our, our lives. I messaged leader R and his wife and said, I know that it's late later in the evening, But we've had another incident with George. If you, I understand if you don't want to deal with this, like if you're, I don't remember my exact words, but I basically was trying to say, it's okay that you're not, you don't think we should do anything about this. And I was sincere. Like I I said, that's okay, but I need to let you know that I'm going to go speak to uh, another missionary couple, Glenn and Linnea, Another missionary couple who had been trained in conflict resolution through, I think it's called Barnabas International. They they're mediators between missionaries, which is very needed. And I thought I'd spent time with this missionary couple before. I think they're compassionate. They might be able to assist us. I don't know why I felt the need to tell leader RNA. I regret it now. I would have just spoken to Glenn and Linnea to begin with. That text started what ended with me leaving. I got a call right away from Leader R's wife. She was compassionate but confused. I don't think they understood the dynamics of what was going on and, like, how it had come to a climax, a heightened sense of, like, need. I think she felt like she needed to calm me down, which was not the situation. She said a couple things to try and calm me down. Then she handed the phone to Leader R, and she left the room, I think, to use the bathroom. And he basically berated me for being in Boquete to begin with, which confused me because I was supposed to be there. He berated, kind of blamed me for all, the entire team for being there, which I had no control over and also shouldn't have been a problem that they were there. I He said, I know what you're doing. You're gathering people around you to your side and basically implying that I was influencing people for something. I, I think he was mad that I was asking them to, to handle, even though I wasn't, but like asking them to kind of, I think maybe he felt guilty or something that I was trying to guilt him into handling this George situation. He started accusing me of being like a surreptitious person, a potster basically. And I started tearing up and I got really scared and I felt intimidated and I didn't know what to say. And I'd never had anyone accuse me of that before. And the thing about bullies is they, they'll take a grain of salt and weave it into. You know, they find your weakness and they'll just poke it and they'll weave it into this big thing. And, yeah, I, I did have people around me. I had the girl that was crying and and my roommate They were around me. And he basically told me, go to bed. Like, go to bed, young lady, was the vibe. And he was like, you need to stop, go to bed, and, like, grow up. I hung up the phone and I was sobbing. Uh, I, I just said a quick okay and hung up the phone. And I repeated everything that he had said to me to my teammates. And I was confused and hurt. And, like, mad. <laughs> you That sense of just bewilderment when someone kind of gaslights you or someone just steamrolls you. Just completely disoriented. I went to bed. And I was thinking at that point, like, I had had enough. This is the first time that he had directly, like, yelled at me and spoken to me so harshly. Many other times before was very, like, you could kind of pass it off if he wanted to as, like, a joke or kind of, like... Weasel out of it. This was very direct and very commandeering. And my mom was coming, and I thought, well, at least I'm going to tell my mom everything. And the next day, his wife called me, and I told her what her husband had said to me on the phone the night before. And she was, I have come to learn that this is a common thing uh, with her, and I experienced it that she was confused. And she said, well, I was only gone for a little bit, and I I didn't hear that. I didn't hear him say those things to you. But, I, you know, that's really hard if he did. And so it was kind of like not really taking any care or concern. So after she and I spoke, she told him what I had said that he had said to me on the phone. And he called me, and I was terrified to pick up that phone. And I said, <sighs> I said a couple things, and he was like, I never said any of those things to you. He completely denied saying that I was a pot stirrer, that I gathered people around me. Like, the most blatant, flat-out lie I had ever heard. And it was just so crystallizing. I, like, all the anger I'd been storing up, like, came to me. And I was like, I said, you absolutely did say those things to me. I don't care what you say. That is what happened. I'm going home tomorrow. And it was just like... It was an automatic thing. Like, I just, it just came out of me. It was just like, okay, this is what's happening. Like, this person has lied to me. All that doubt I had about my own voice and what I was witnessing and what I was seeing. No, this is clarifying and confirming in this very moment. He is lying with something that I saw with my own, or not saw with my own eyes, but heard with my own ears. So, when my mom came, I told her the story. We got in contact with the uh, uh, World Venture base. And they arranged my flight home. I had to see him. I didn't have to, but I felt like I had to see him one more time for kind of a goodbye debrief. And I was shaking the entire time my mom was with me. I wouldn't wouldn't do that again. Like if I could go back, I would not have felt the need to. And um, my teammates, that was kind of an inciting incident for my teammates to write him a letter after I left. Because they'd see they'd finally listened and understood what I'd been telling them and they'd seen another teammate leave. They wrote a letter to him, and one of the journey Corps coordinators from World Venture was there in Côte d'Ivoire when they read the letter. Leader R was very angry and started accusing casting blame. I mean, if you're familiar with um, our former president, like that's the vibe that I got. Like <laughs> everyone else is at fault, not him. He'll take a his Christian spin on it is that he'll take a little piece of it and own it to, like, make it palatable that, oh, this is the little part that I did that was wrong and I won't do it again. But it's everyone else's fault. Everyone else did it. Darvo. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, throwing my reputation on the bus, um, how I was insulting to other – like, I was a bad uh, journeyer. I w- insulted Ivorians. I was a loose woman, like – getting the boys to like me that still hurts to this day like i can separate myself from that stuff but it that that pain like never fully goes away like especially he said all that stuff about you to them yeah and to uh the world venture journey journey core coordinator yeah and like I, my teammates only knew me from our time there like they don't know who i am outside of that and so i'm really thankful that they it wasn't just standing up for me. It was about many things that he did. It wasn't, it wasn't just about me, but I appreciate that they wrote that letter and that they vouched for my character. And one of my teammates was, you know, a bridesmaid in our wedding when I came home and eventually got married. And like I really appreciate a lot of my teammates. They were awesome. But that man leader, Ari is still a missionary. He's still continuing to do these things, still continuing to hurt my Ivorian friends. Uh, who are part of that church still trying to control and browbeat people into doing his will. And I think what makes me furious is it's one thing to it's one thing to um prey upon young people and even older missionaries like but you are there to minister and to live among people who have a different culture than you and to share the gospel and he deeply hurts story after story of hurting people in that community too and and causing a lot of fear. And I saw it and it's continuing to happen. And that—that that is why I'm comfortable using his name. That is why I am full of this anger. Um, and I hope, dear Lord, that it's righteous anger. Like it's, that is not okay. Like by any standard, if you're going there to serve and not only are you hurting the servants, but the ones you are serving, it's all not okay. But that particularly gives me a heart to speak the name of the person continuing to do this and the people in power who are allowing him to continue to do this they have closed ears and closed eyes and they continue ignore story after story of this person giving him chances and and i'm not advocating he'd be thrown in a dungeon i'm just saying don't be a leader do not put him in a position of leadership it's not appropriate
0: i don't i don't even know what to say I mean, I I, I want to get to the end of the the last few questions, but I mean, I think you you know for for going for understanding what you went through. Actually, I can't say I understand what you went through because I didn't go through it. But what I would say is to hearing what you went through and being a part of this process. We've met you, you've shared your story. I think you've done an amazing job at sharing this story, and. And the way that you have shared not only what you've experienced with grace and dignity, but with a strength in your voice, I hope everybody hears because we see you on the screen. But like, I hope they, it's going to come through because people need to hear this. They need to hear that strength um, because someone out there is searching for that strength, and this story is going to give them that. Leader R doesn't win, you know, your strength wins. And uh, I think whoever hears this will, it's going to be big for
2: them. It wasn't always that way. (laughs) It's been 10 years. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. I have a couple of last questions. First, I would love to know what has helped you through your healing process, through learning more about your story? What's helped you? And then why did you want to share your story?
2: The first help uh, was... My teammate, Crystal, who listened while I was telling her these things. The second help was my mother, who believed me when she arrived. The first person, well, next to Crystal. So the second person to believe me. The third person was the person I met when I got off the plane, which is my now husband. And his deep patience and care. I'm a big fan of my husband, <laughs> so he's pretty great. Uh, he was the first person who I got to process it through, who was, you know, like, Crystal was a part of it, like, she was there, but he was, he was someone who wasn't there, and like, I processed it through, and uh, I told M the mission, Second Missionary Couple, a little bit about what happened, because they were not present for most of this, like, they were literally in a different part of the world. and they were compassionate. They told me, they gave me the name of someone and told me to write a letter. Um, and Chris, my husband helped me write that letter. And I shook the entire time I wrote it. And it was two years after it happened before I could even do that. And I spilled it all. Just swear words everywhere on that page. (laughs) Like the, the, it was so raw Like, I learned to swear in Africa. I mean, this is a situation, like, (laughs) there was no other word, and maybe, uh, are you trying to avoid an explicit rating because I can work around that? No, you're not trying to avoid it? Okay. I learned how to say fuck in such a cathartic way. (laughs) Like, if you knew me before, I was, you would never hear that word out of my mouth. And like, thank you, Susie, one of my teammates who taught me how to say fuck. And how, like, I know, (laughs) she was amazing how important that is and now I have to rein it in that I have a child but like it was so cathartic and on that letter I just wrote everything I felt and I felt believed by Chris like so believed and he didn't know what to do either like he doesn't have any training but he encouraged me to get help and um it what didn't help was I and I know this is not answering the question but I chose this mission organization because I knew they had a reputation for having a lot of missionary support and care. They had a lot of, they had good health care. They had a psychologist on staff. They were well, their infrastructure was good, which is not always the case in mission organizations. And I knew that that was valuable. I thought it would be wise, but my experience speaking to their psychologist was not positive. Um, I did not feel like I was believed. I felt like it was almost like speaking to human resources. If you know what I mean when I say that, like it's, They're not there for you. They're for the people who are already there or for the company. And I don't know if that's the case with her, but I was told to write everything down. And I was not at a place where I could write anything down. It was just, I could barely speak what happened to me to her because I didn't think I would be believed. So that was pretty disappointing. But I did get the chance to send this letter off to someone who... Was going to pass it along, and I unfortunately don't know what happened to it. Um, I recently shared that with PNM, and they were very disappointed that no one had followed up with me. That's a loose end that hasn't been tied yet. But also, listening to stories that you share on your podcast, I mean, just connection is huge because you feel so alone and so isolated like that. You feel tiny like this little wounded speck. And when all of a sudden you hear that other people have experienced this, it's huge. It's just, it helps you process it so much. And I I do EMDR therapy and then the cognitive behavioral therapy and that helps a lot. Um, I started taking anxiety medicine after this experience um, and I need it still to function well and I'm so grateful for it. It's been really helpful, and so um, I don't remember the second part of your question, but
0: that was it. You answered it. Oh, oh, why did you want to share your story? And you can, and then you can also add like, what would you say to people that are in similar situations? And then the last question, we're gonna, it's gonna be a standalone question. So
2: I've shared a little bit about my heart for wanting to share this, but I'll just like reiterate it. Um, I knew that this wasn't for nothing. Everything that I went through. Uh, because it changed the entire course of my trajectory of my li- like career choices, I did not pursue the mission field like I thought I would. I spent four years of college preparing for it, and that was at an end. I needed to come home and heal, and I kept praying, God, will you use this? Once I started to receive healing and feel stronger and like start to put together what had happened— and i kept praying and i kept saying god big part of me wants to go to that intercultural studies senior seminar at my old college and just be like yo guys i got some i got some shit to share with you i mean probably wouldn't be allowed to say shit but they uh i want so deeply for people preparing for missions and I have a lot of other negative experiences in uh, vocational ministry ministry as well unfortunately so it's not just missions but anyone preparing to go or anyone who's been wounded just to fill them with like hope that there is there are wonderful examples but also there are really important emotional spiritual developments that you need to have to prepare yourself and there was like a very brief mention of interpersonal conflict and how to deal with it in my degree a very small one did not nearly cover what I needed to know and even if it had it's still no substitute for experience but so deeply want people thinking of going on the mission field to know that their voice matters and too often the church silences the voice especially women Tells you not to trust your gut, that you're just a broken sinner, and you need to trust the people in authority, and you have to trust the institution because you're wrong. And what God did for me during this experience was rip. I mean, I have this image of God ripping a parasite off of my heart that I had been depending on, of trusting not in Him and in trusting in other people to tell me what was right. Instead of working out my relationship with God, and listening to the voice of him inside of me, he made himself so much bigger. Like I feel so much, I get really passionate about this, I feel so much freer than I ever did before this happened. And I would never wish it on my worst enemy, but God used it. And I just, to break me free of those chains that had, was starting to swallow me as I got deeper into that conservative Christian, like, what's the word for it? Like factory, like culture. It's just, I, I don't want someone to go through what I went through and I want them to be more prepared. So my heart, as I listened to more stories on your podcast, I was like, okay, God, is this, sh- should I write an email? I've debated for like months if I should email you guys. It's <laughs> like, I I do have an X-29 story, but the big one is actually missions. Like, and then you had <clears throat> a mission story of YWAM. I was like, all right, that's, if you're going to send me a sign, Lorelai, I think that's it. So I. Yeah, that's when I filled out the contact form and the rest is history.
1: Well, all you mission org leaders out there listening, you better get ready and buckle up because the missionaries are talking. <laughs> You're not alone. Yes. As soon as we opened that box, it's been just, we have gotten quite Blood. a few emails. And I really do think it all comes back to this like very distilled version of what this whole podcast exists for. like. These instances are happening, but it's so distilled and so intense because you're in another country in this and you're solely reliant for your next day to day, like your meals and stuff on these men and sometimes women. So, yeah. And the enabling women. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. Chase, final question. This is my final one.
0: <laughs> I feel like I need to do it in a different voice, but I'm not going to. So I, I really do I, I think it's important. I think this one's important because I, I would I, I think your perspective needs to be shared. What what do you want to share or say to World Venture or any other leaders within World Venture?
2: This is a hard one because what I want to say is different than what I probably would say. If you know what I mean. Like what I want to say is probably filled with some choice words. I said it earlier and I'll say it again is open your eyes. Open them. To the suffering that you're enabling. Believe people when they tell you something is rotten. But I think that as hard as it was for the Pharisees to open their eyes, it's just as hard for these very conservative Christian spaces to open theirs because they're holding on to their worldviews and their laws and their everything with an iron fist. And anything that might challenge it, that has a whiff of feminism, liberalism, anything that scares them, they they don't. So, however, there are wonderful missionaries who work with World Venture. I, I cherish some of them. And I, I have a lot of grace for those who are doing the good work of the Lord and and they find themselves having to wade through the waters of abuse like this. So I would say thank you to Glenn and Linnea and PNM for their work and I would say to the leadership back in Denver that I was a beloved child of God and a smart woman and everything that you would think I was supposed to be, and I was still abused by someone who you enabled. And you, you just need to open your eyes because you're, you're wounding these sheep. And when we hear words like this, our tendency is to close our fists and to be defensive. And I would say you have nothing to lose and only to gain the heart of Christ by listening to people.
1: So initially when we did this recording, right now we're going back and punching in. When we did this recording, we did it with names. Yeah. And we've really wrestled since doing that with should we have names, should we not. We actually landed as a podcast on not using the names. And that was hard. Like mm-hmm. we've really wrestled with that. And part of like feeling empowered was using names. And I just want you to talk a little bit about what that means to like put this story out there for you and to use initials and why you're still choosing to tell your story and what it means to you to tell your story. Thank you. I really love that question. Oh, it feels so good to have that person's
2: name in my mouth to speak it out loud, not just to my friends and family, but to people who deeply understand the dynamics of these abusive situations and to say this is what happened to me I will not be silenced because so many people have tried to do that or have given me that Christian brush off of well just I'm so sorry that you're struggling um I hope you find peace and like that's really sad like no this is not okay and this is who did it and is continuing to do it A lot of good points were brought up that there are certain people in this story who deserve the respect of the autonomy of telling their own story themselves. It's not my job to tell that part, even though our stories are intertwined. And so it was a hard choice for me to have to give up that sense of truth and shining light on this exact situation and sharing my story authentically while also respecting those people and keeping them safe. Um, and I think that is so. What was so convincing and powerful to me is that the people who are involved in this story are going to know who I'm talking about, and World Venture will know exactly who I'm talking about, and that's all that matters right now. To who needs to know exactly who I'm talking about, and for everyone else listening, I hope that what you take away from this is that this is absolutely possible and unfortunately common on the mission field, and. There are things that we can do about it, and there. If you are going to go serve in ministry, like your voice matters. Like I want to share this, so that you hear my story and are able to take sage lessons from it, and hopefully encouragement. And I don't have to use his name to do that. And world venture, you know who I'm speaking of, and I'm asking you and holding you accountable to listen to the voice and the voices of people who've been wounded by this person.
0: Shasta's story is yet another example of why the struggle for power and relevance in our Christian religion matters more than the individual. Because when we favor those who are responsible for the sometimes irreparable damage to others' souls and worth— Is this not the ultimate illustration that the illusions of grandeur are woven deep into the fabric of the culture of our churches and faith institutions? Once this door is open, no matter what the stories of abuse and trauma or hurt that we hear, our ears close and our eyes look away. And those who perpetrated the abuse settle back into their pulpits or behind their desk and resume their positions of power and authority. In my opinion, this trade, power for souls, is our greatest witness today. A witness that stands in direct contradiction from the Savior we proclaim. For John A. Harris... I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and not those of this podcast. This content is presented for informational and educational purposes that constitute fair use, commentary, or criticism. While we make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, we welcome any comment, suggestion, or correction of errors.